Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Welcome to episode number 88 of History for Weirdos. Woohoo! And today is pretty exciting, isn't it, Stephanie? Yeah, today's a really special day. Tell them why. Okay, okay. I get the honors? You get the honors. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow weirdos, today, Monday, May 15th at 9 a.m. Pacific, so it's probably already passed at this point in time, you can get your spot for our trip to Italy. Yay! The uh, spots officially go on sale. Um, Please, please check out the link in our bio on Instagram, and it's going to be in the show notes as well, where you can check out the whole trip itinerary, um, all the amazing sites we're going to go to in both Rome and Florence, and book your spot so that we can see you there next April. Yeah, guys, and it's it's pretty important you do it sooner rather than later, because the first 10 people get a discount, Mm -hmm. and then... There's only 21 spots available right now, so they're going to go by really quickly. So if you're interested, I would definitely do it ASAP, and you don't have to put down the full amount. It's only like 25%, and there's also payment plans, so they made it really easy, I think, for all of us. Yeah, that's why I would recommend booking sooner rather than later is because it's nice to just put down 25% and then like slowly pay over time because it's not until next April. Right. So that's a good amount of time to make the payments and it won't feel like a big cost all at once. Exactly. And then before you know it, you're in Italy with the weirdo community. With us? With I us. know. I'm so excited. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So that was our big announcement for today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we will obviously be providing more updates, especially, you know, leading up to the trip as it gets closer. We're going to share lots of stuff on social media, like tips for um, traveling through Italy and what we're packing and fun stuff like that. So please follow us on Instagram if you have not done so already. Our Instagram is at history for weirdos. Correct. Yes. And without further ado, I think it's it's time, right? Yes. This week... Andrew, you have, I think, a particularly weird tale to tell. I do, I do. And I want to give a little shout out to my friend and actual fraternity brother, Kevin, who gave me this idea. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. So you also, um, if you hate the story, uh, you can blame Kevin. It's his fault. Totally Kevin's fault. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so without further ado, let's just dive right in. So this is a wild tale. Um because we're going to be connecting like legendary ancient Athenian playwright to a doomed 19th century sea voyage searching for the like Northwest Passage and then also connecting it to a haunted painting. Oh, wow. So we have ancient history, like doomed sea voyage and haunted painting. Yes, all in one. Wow, this is going to be an interesting episode. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, my dear weirdos, I know what you're thinking, and probably Steph as well. (laughs) This is just sounds insane. And it sort of is insane, but it doesn't make anything what I'm about to tell you guys any less true. 
Wow. I'm really excited to see how those three different points in history connect. Yeah, well, it's, it's wild. So first, let's start off in ancient Athens, because why not, right? Yeah, why not? So we're going to start off in particular in the latter part of the 5th century BC in Athens. So we're, there's a play right here by the name of Euripides. You might have heard his name. He's actually mm-hmm. incredibly famous. He even um, influenced Shakespeare. Right. So he's a big deal. And I mean, I could just go on a huge tangent uh, just about his life and his contributions, but we're not going down that rabbit hole. We're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So all I'll say is um, he is one of the greatest playwrights of all time, probably one of the greatest writers of all time. Um, he was really known for depicting traditional mythical heroes as ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. Like he pioneered that, which is this trope that we still use to this day. Um, he became known as the best tragedy writer of his time and probably in all of antiquity, if I'm being honest. Um, even in the age, like after Alexander's death, like a hundred years after Alexander, so it's centuries um, at this time, like people in the Hellenistic uh, kingdoms, like researched and like read his works Yeah, as part of just like the daily curriculum. Wow. Yeah. Pretty, pretty interesting. Um, and we also just have more complete versions of his plays than any other tragedy writers from the time. So naturally he's going to be the one that, you know, is spoken about the most. Right. Right. That we study the most. Yeah. There's also Sophocles and, um, there's another one. I'm just forgetting off the top of my head, but Sophocles wrote the Oedipus plays. Yes. The three Oedipus plays. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Aeschylus. That was the third one. Mm Mm-hmm. So, basically, this guy's a big deal. That's all you need to know. (laughs) The only reason I might bring him up, however, is because of the last lines in some of his plays all generally say the same kind of thing about the folly of man, especially when it comes to the wishes of the gods. Ooh. That's important. The Roman author, Lucian, centuries later, would summarize uh, by saying, Pola de alptos caneuse the beautiful thank you that was so well said thank you <laughs> so weirdos if you don't speak ancient greek uh, basically in english that can be loosely translated to the gods bring many matters to surprising ends and i probably Ooh. butchered that greek if i'm being honest but i tried well you fooled me that sounded like <laughs> ancient greek to me so can you thank repeat you. the the phrase what it is in english Okay, I was going to do it in, in Greek, but... No, that's no. okay, in English again. <laughs> the gods bring many matters to surprising ends. It's a loose yeah, translation. That's very true. Yes, and that will come into play later on. Millennia later. Damn. So, and in case you all are interested, um, it's it's specifically the plays Alcestis, Andromache, Helen, and Bacchae, or Bacchae. Uh-huh. Um, those are the ones that have kind of like the very end. They all f- follow the same sort of trope. Okay. And also remember this, my fellow weirdos. Euripides, when he was an old man, voluntarily exiled himself from Athens. His contemporary and friend, Socrates, was forced to commit suicide. And whether out of fear for his own life or loathing for the city, he lived in a cave for most likely the rest of his days after this point. Mm. Um, he was a recluse and pretty much lived out the end of his life in relative obscurity and isolation. And I'm guessing probably not very happy circumstances. Right, right. I mean, that's, clearly. That's really harsh and extreme. Yeah. But self-induced. Self-induced, yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah, Athens was a really it was really rough at this time. It's during the Peloponnesian War, mm-hmm. um, and they were, they had this massive plague. Like people died. Um, so there's a lot of pain and trauma going on. Exactly, and like the entire Greek War is at or and Greek War, the Greek world is are at each other's throats at this point. Um, and here though is where we're gonna leave ancient Greece and fast forward a couple thousand years to the 19th century. Ooh. Yes. So by this time, European powers had been trying to navigate a shorter trip from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this goes all the way back to the Spanish and, ex- and Portuguese explorers of the 15th century. Yeah. Um, and you know, the Brits, they came upon the scene a little bit later, but you know, by the early to mid portions of the 19th century, they had well established themselves um, along, you know, the eastern portions of North America, you know, mostly in present day, the eastern United States and Canada. Yeah, we call it New England, the New England states. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, essentially by 1800, the centuries of explorations had proven um, that there was no definitive Northwest passage along, you know, or through hospitable zones. Mm, what does hospitable zones mean? Like basically uh, zones that aren't like completely frozen. Oh, okay. Like you can like live there. Yeah. So um, basically what does this kind of mean to us and to explorers is like the only place left to explore to try to find the Northwest Passage was through the Arctic. Yes. Oh my gosh. This was such a vibe of that time. It was such a vibe. <laughs> um, and I don't have this in my notes, but the Northwest Passage did end up proving to exist. Which is weird because I thought I learned what? in school that it didn't exist. Yeah, I thought the whole point... It uh, did exist, yeah. I thought it was like a the, feudal... The early 20th century, there... Um, I, I don't even remember... I didn't put it in my notes. It's it's not even part of the story. But there was a gentleman who did use... Like, it was the northern coast of Canada through, like, through ice. He was able... I mean, it's, it's only open a very short amount of time of year. And he was able to do it. Mm. I mean, now it doesn't really matter because we have airplanes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a big deal at the time. Yeah, I remember learning about this in school and it kind of having this like sad tone to it. Like, oh, this was such a futile uh, effort that was made and so many people died trying to figure this out. I think it's also referenced in Frankenstein. Yes, it is. The doctor, it's a story within a story, right? The doctor, Dr. Frankenstein is with a crew trying to find the Northwest Passage. Yeah. Telling them about this monster that he made. <laughs> yes. And then they encounter the monster at the end. Yeah. That's so interesting. I didn't realize it was a real thing. It was real. Yeah. Oh. Or it is real. I'll get to something later that wasn't real, but... We'll continue for now. So 1804 rolls around and the Royal Navy really began to try to um, try to explore the Arctic portions mm-hmm. to find this Northwest Passage. Um, so this it was mainly led at the behest of a man by the name of Sir John Barrow, who was the second secretary of the Admiralty. Okay. Don't ask me what that means, but basically... All it is, it's really high up in the Royal Navy, you know, the or, in, or essentially like the organization that oversaw the Navy. And that's really all. That's all that's important. Um, so over the course of decades, he organized roughly a dozen different expeditions at least through the North Atlantic trying to find this Northwest Passage. Mm. 
So this guy Barrow, he was at it for quite some time. You know, fast forward 41 years, and he's old now. He's 82 years old, to be specific. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He felt that they were really close to finding uh, the Northwest Passage uh, because they narrowed down where it could possibly be located through just decades of essentially, you know, process of elimination. Yeah. He also believed that they would find what was called the Open Polar Sea, hmm. which was theorized to be a body of water that wasn't frozen that encircled the North Pole. Oh. So this was the thing that ended up not being real, just to be clear. Oh, okay. Yeah. So maybe we remember the same thing from school. Maybe like, we've remembered it incorrectly. Yeah. Both of us. <laughs> yeah, I know. Or, you know, it is the American educational system, so. That's true. They could have just given us false information. <laughs> I mean... They have in the past, so I'm not surprised that they, they did here. But long story short, there was um, some drama because a few people that Barrow picked to lead this expedition mm-hmm. through the Arctic either didn't just straight up were, was like, nope, not going to do it. Yeah. Or they were rejected by, you know, like even higher ups in the Admiralty altogether. Okay. Eventually, though, he settles on a veteran Arctic explorer, Sir John Franklin, to lead the expedition. Yeah. Sir John Franklin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some even better names here. Mm-hmm. And there would be two ships on this expedition. And to give you guys just a wee bit of a spoiler here, the trip is known as Franklin's Lost Expedition. Okay. I mean, I did say it was ill-fated <laughs> in the beginning, so... I feel like you know. that's a big spoiler, babe. Yeah. I said it was ill-fated, like, so this shouldn't be a surprise, guys. <laughs> I'm shocked. You're shocked and appalled? Yeah. Okay. Well, anyways... I, I mean, also the two, the names of the, the ships on this voyage mm-hmm. should have been just a dead giveaway, in my opinion. Why? The HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. Oh, no. Why would they do that? <laughs> yeah. So, guys, Erebus is from Greek mythology and was like a primordial god of the underworld and was kind of like a personification of literal darkness. Mm-hmm. So, there's just some bad juju right there. And then... The name Terror also. Mm-hmm. Not very um, hopeful names for <laughs> yeah. your ships. Yeah, especially for like a scientific exploration. Mm-hmm. The leadership of this expedition also included a man by the name of Francis Crozier, who would be in charge of the HMS Terror, kind of as like uh, the second in command overall. And then like the third in command was a man by the name of James Fitzjames. Wow. Yeah. That's who, a cool name. And he would be uh, the second in command to Franklin on the HMS Erebus itself. Okay. So the third in command overall. But I just, I wanted to say their names. They're not like particularly important. I guess they're important for this expedition, but not for the general story today. But I just, I love that name, James Fitzjames. And I yeah, wanted to say it. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Also an interesting note is that these ships were decades old, but had been retrofitted with what was, at the time, advanced technology. Mm-hmm. So both had steam engines that had come from locomotives and were also retrofitted with steel parts to be more durable in like the harsher mm-hmm. Arctic conditions. Mm-hmm. And lastly, they had approximately three years' worth of food on them for this voyage. But here's the thing. like The food preparation was done very last minute, and the guy who won the contract um, to put together all the food supplies did so by cutting a lot of corners to meet these tight deadlines. Oof. 
Yeah, so, I mean, lo- I'm not going to bore you guys with the details, and it's kind of nasty, actually, uh, but, like, a lot of the tinned food or canned food was just improperly done and would then go it bad. it just rots, yeah. Yeah, and it just basically rotted. The canning process is key. It's kind of important, yeah. For, for preserving it. And it's just a big-time oof. So they went with went in with the intention of three years' worth of food, but a significant amount ended up rotting. Yes. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's now go time on this expedition. And the expedition set sail on May 19th, 1845 from Greenhith, Kent, and made its way north, passing Scotland, and a month later landed in Greenland. From there, they didn't do a whole lot for about a month as they were probably waiting for, you know, better or warmer conditions, right? Because even though they're like, it's now like middle of July, late July, it's still really cold. It's the Arctic. Yeah, yeah it's the Arctic. So it's probably always cold. And in fact, in late July of 1845, two whaling ships saw the terror in Erebus in Baffin Bay, which is, you know, a body of water that's nestled between northern Canada and Greenland. Okay. And they were waiting, again, for the good conditions specifically to cross the Lancaster Sound, which, you know, is, it's, it's sort of like a body of water that's, like, nestled between all these Canadian islands. Okay. That's, like, mostly frozen, like, for most of the year. And this time, the two, the when the whaling ships saw these two uh, ships, that was the last time that they were heard from by any Europeans. Oh, yeah. Um, we know that through some subsequent expeditions trying to find out what happened and from finding logs, um, as well as artifacts from the trip, we can kind of, kind of surmise like a general timeline of events. Mm-hmm. And. We know that the two ships got stuck in ice off King William Island in September of 1846, so like a little over a year later, and they presumably never sailed again. Wow. So their survivors of the trip wintered on the island, um, not only that winter, but the subsequent winter. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they must have thought that they were good, as you know, maybe that the search and rescue parties were going on, and you know, they had quite a bit of food right left. or so they thought or so they thought yeah um but unfortunately no survivors would ever be found from oh this trip oh my gosh um from a note written by fitz james and crozier we would later find out that franklin had died on june 11th 1847 a little over two years from the beginning of the voyage such a long voyage already yeah it's really sad too because his widow mm-hmm. she held out hope till her dying day that he was still alive. Oh. Yeah. That's very sweet. I know. I know. Um, it's it's really sad. So as a last-ditch effort, the remainder of the crew, um, they tr- basically just tried to walk to the Canadian mo- mainland in hopes of finding some civilization. Right. Um, we know that no one made it, and all 129 of the crew died. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of people and people who are used to difficult conditions. Right. Perishing, my goodness. And Stephanie, does... Any of this also sound kind of vaguely familiar by any chance? Any of this Arctic exploration stuff? Yes, it does. Are you just saying that because I asked <laughs> you in a funny voice? Or does it actually... Was this, is this 
something similar happened in the episode early on that you did about the presidential desk? Yes, you got it right. Yeah. Yes, way back in episode nine, the British Connection. The we, British Connection. We did yes. cover not this exactly, but a follow-up expedition that was in search for Franklin's oh, lost yes. ships. Yeah, that's why. Yes, that's why this was all like the expedition sounded familiar. I just right. couldn't in the name uh, Franklin, but I was like, I don't know why. Yeah, it's a long, long, yeah, yeah. long time ago. It's yeah, episode number nine. So yeah, quite a bit, and just a very brief. Uh, recap, Captain Edward Belcher was searching for these ships. Yes. And ironically, his shop, the ships got caught on the ice. Yep. And an American whaler found one of the ships, the HMS Resolute, returned her to England where the ship was disassembled and some of that timber was made into a desk, which now sits in the Oval Office. It's all connected. It's all connected, man. And that desk is called the Resolute Desk. Yep. Unsurprisingly. Very cool. Yeah. What a throwback. But, you know, that's not the story. And we got to finish up here with the Erebus and the Terror. The Terror Era. So, in 1854, <laughs> John Ray of the Hudson Bay Company, he spoke with an Inuit community who had actually seen some of the survivors. Mm. And with their help, Ray located dead bodies mm. on King William Island. And he also reported that there had been signs of cannibalism mm. among the last survivors. That's so sad. Yeah. This was all reported back in England, which, you know, shocked them as they believed that their society was just honestly too far advanced for something like this to occur. Damn, that's some hubris right there. It's a little bit of hubris. And interestingly enough, um, actually relatively recently, within the last 10 years, we did find the two ships. What? Yeah, I think it was, we found one in 2014 and one in 2016. How spooky to come across them. I know. Particularly knowing the fates of the men that brought them there right i i just find that like so fascinating that it's like oh yeah we finally found them and the british government at the time uh, i think offered a reward for like twenty thousand pounds oh wow to find them which nowadays money would be worth like a little over two million pounds my goodness i don't know if the people that found them try to claim that money or not (laughs) i totally would yeah I'd find the original like ad for it and I'd be like, hello. Yeah, adjust this for inflation. Yeah, adjust Do not this for give inflation. Me give me two million. <laughs> so interesting. So this all leads me to the painting. Mm-hmm. So the third element of our story. Yes. I feel like I have to put in a little bit of a like kind of like a warning. Okay. Because it's quite grotesque what I'm about to describe. Nice. Nice, yes. In 1864, so 19 years after the fateful James expedition left England, artist Edwin Landseer painted what he envisioned how this journey sort of ended. Oh, man, dude. Why? (laughs) Why? (laughs) I don't think anyone wants to see that, but okay. You know, he he was an eccentric type, so we're just going to get into it. (laughs) He envisioned that it ended at the hands of, or rather, the mouths of polar bears. What? Yeah. The painting depicts two polar bears seen tearing, um, <laughs> like, rugs apart. Okay. And one of the bears has a human rib in its mouth. Very graphic for the time. Very graphic. Very gory. And it's very bloody. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's it's a little bit shocking, actually, to, to see. Even now. Even by today's standards. Really? Yeah. Um, the painting is called... Man proposes, God disposes, mm-hmm. which borrows the line directly from the Latin phrase, Omo proponit sedus disponit, 
which, again, that's a direct translation. Mm-hmm. And uh, that line, that, that Latin line, does not come from actually antiquity at all. It comes from a 15th century book called The Imitation of Christ uh, by a German cleric named Thomas A. Kempis. Okay. And almost assuredly, he took uh, this Latin phrase you know, from the earlier Lucian and our boy Euripides. Right, but he made it like one god versus the gods. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it kind of Christianified it a bit. Yeah, he Christianified it. And then this uh, Lancer used that phrase as the name of the painting. The painting. the painting was certainly a statement piece in high society in London. And basically, generally speaking, people disapproved of it. But were probably fascinated by it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, unsurprisingly, again, as the UK at this time viewed their society as like the top tier in the whole world, and to have Mm -hmm. this be the result of something that was supposed to be a great achievement (laughs) was not only an embarrassment, but really, truly like an affront to British society as a whole. I'm rolling my eyes, hardcore weirdos. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying, you know, whether, you know, their assertions are right or wrong. I'm just saying this is what it is. Yeah. And so the painting was exhibited at the 1864 Royal Academy Summer Exhibition. Mm-hmm. And the widow of James Franklin was even invited, but unsurprisingly, she did not come to see the painting. Yeah. Uh, though, I don't blame her. <laughs> though art critics did actually like the painting, and it was um, somewhat critically acclaimed, funny enough. Yeah, I feel like that's the type of painting that you that fellow artists would appreciate. Right. The masses might be like disturbed right. and fascinated, but I bet if it's a good painting, other artists would think it so. It was, and it was almost like a statement piece. Like, we can we can say whatever we want. We can have these grand dreams, but, you know, man proposes, God will dispose. It's like our modern day saying in English of, um, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. So... In short, it caused a stir, but we're going to fast forward a little bit to 1881, uh, 17 years later. Okay. Uh, This painting was bought by a man named Thomas Holloway, who put the macabre piece in the women's college because he was like a dean. He was high up in the administration. Okay. Um, Though this women's college is now part of the University of London and is co-ed, just kind of as an FYI. But anyways, it's here that we must shift focus yet again. Tell us, tell us. So this painting is widely considered cursed. And to this day, during exams, a (laughs) Union Jack covers it as students will not test while the painting remains uncovered. That's so cool. (laughs) Yes. So a legend formed uh, back in like the 20s or 30s that something pretty horrific happened. Um, There's no evidence that this event occurred, but the superstition still holds true to this day. In the 1920s and 30s? Yes. Uh-huh. Or the 1920s or 30s. Okay. Um, but in short, during an examination, a student killed themselves while taking an exam. Uh, who And this person was, sit, like, in, according to legend, seated right in front of the portrait. Mm-hmm. So this student, again, according to legend, I cannot stress that enough, you know, stabbed him or herself in the eye with a pen while either writing or screaming the polar bears made me do it. Ooh. Yeah. Very dark. Yes. And this student, again, according to legend, ended up dying. So committing suicide, more or less. 
So, and to this day, it is still believed that this painting is indeed bad luck, and you will fail your exam if you sit by it without it being covered. I feel like it sounds like the stakes are a little bit higher <laughs> than just failing your test. Yes. But that's very typical, I guess, of like an academic setting for them to assume that the worst thing that could happen is you fail your test. It's it like sounds... Hermione. Yes, definitely a Hermione thing. <laughs> we could thing. die. Or worse, be expelled. Yes, that's the vibe here. Yeah. Um, but that is horrific. Yes. I mean, it is probably a series of coincidences of, you know, how, you know, this misfortune of Euripides endured later on in life and manifested in ways, mm-hmm. you know, between the expedition and, and the painting and all that stuff. But what if it wasn't? What if they're all connected? What if they're all connected? If there's some sort of, like, energetic curse here that's being passed through this greek through tragedy the, theme yes through the ages it is truly tragic mm-hmm. so you can decide that my fellow weirdos and stephanie mm-hmm. so but this is the strange offense connecting a storied playwright of ancient athens to an ill-fated arctic exploration to a potentially cursed painting wow did you know if, uh, do people tend to fail their tests if it's not covered or people reporting <laughs> No, that? they, I mean, students will not sit for an exam, apparently. Like, they cover it with the Union Jack, like, ever since the 70s. That's so Like, it's a tradition weird. now wow. to do it. Wow. And do you know the name of the college? Um, yeah, it's like the, it, it's part of the University of London. It's okay. like, uh, it's a really strange system they have that yeah. I don't really quite understand. Like schools within schools. Yeah, but it's even weirder than that. Okay, well, if anyone has ever seen the painting, because we yeah. do have weirdos that travel a lot or are from the UK. Or if you're a Brit or, you know, whomever, and you guys have, like, sat for an examination oh with, in the room, I, I'm i dying to know. We would love to hear that. Yes. Definitely comment on the post on Instagram for this episode and let us know if you have any experience with this painting whatsoever. Yes. Well, that is the tale of man proposes, God disposes. Wow. That is deep and dark. Yeah, kind of weird. I love really it. Really weird. Very, very interesting. This yes. is a perfect example of weird history for sure. That's true. And our sources for this episode, we have history.com, the Royal Holloway website, the History of Art, the U.S. Naval Institute, and of course our favorite, Wikipedia. That's awesome, babe. Thank you so much. This was fascinating. I definitely felt like you took me on a journey. It felt a little bit like a journey, honestly. We had our own voyage. But not an ill-fated one. A lovely one. A lovely one. It was pleasant. Yes. We, Me and the weirdos got to listen to a really cool story time. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So thank you so much for researching that. Absolutely. And also, weirdos, we forgot to mention this at the beginning of the episode, but what? we, remember, we had that article written about us. Oh, yeah. Yes, from, by Riverside well, it's FM. It's not an article it's not, written it's, about us. I guess it's a, it's a ranking. Yes, we were included in a list of the top history podcasts by Riverside FM. Yes, and they ranked us as number one. Yeah, was... and that's probably thanks to you all, thanks to the folks that share this podcast with other people. Definitely. That helps you know spread the word, get us um, more wonderful weirdos in the community. So thank you, and check out that article. We'll put that in the show notes as well. We will. Okay, guys. That's all we have for you. Thank you so much for listening, weirdos. And thank you, Andrew, for this awesome episode. No problem. Until next time. Adios.